0: stand for the reading of the scripture. (laughs) Scripture is Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, so after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering.'" I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the Lord who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Ah. So we are in a sermon series uh, that we are calling the questions that God asks, the questions that God asks. And the the kind of two point premise is that uh, questions are not only pleasing and acceptable to God, but they are, in fact, at the heart of what God models for us in terms of spiritual formation. So we're trying to say that perhaps the questions that God asks us might be as formative to our faith as the questions that we ask God. And then that helps us kind of reframe the whole life of faith and what it means to be a Christian as something like a question and an answer, maybe, that God's begging a question and that our lives might look a certain way in response. And then once we do that, that kind of helps us figure out, oh, well, then maybe this whole life thing and this whole faith thing isn't so much about or isn't so much about rights and wrongs, isn't so much about do's and don't do's or should's and ought to's, but maybe it's something like a call and response. And then once we start swimming in that, we start to realize, wait, it is kind of true. Maybe God is the greatest question to our lives and maybe the greatest answer to our lives, both at the same time the greatest question and the greatest answer. And then everything becomes about starting to participate in that reality. Our whole lives start to participate in the reality that God is the greatest question and the greatest answer to our lives. And so that's why we're in this series. We're in week three of the questions God asks humans, the questions God asks us. Are y'all with me? just want to set the stage a little bit. Can we go to God in prayer? God, it feels like it's been a rough week in the life of our world. Locally, uh, I think of Gaza right now. I think of the Palestinian people. I think of victims of terrorism. I think of migrants. I think of folks on the run. I think of folks being told to evacuate, and there's nowhere to evacuate. And then I think back to the question. I know we're going to be in a new question today, but I'm stuck on that question from last week. What have you done? And that line is stuck on me, that your sibling's blood cries out from the ground. God, in you there is a different way. We don't have to live like this. You offer to us a different way of living, a different way of thinking, a different way of being in the world, a different way of relating. So by your spirit, would you change us, renew us, teach us what it means to embody love in this world that needs love, to embody moral courage in the face of cowardice, faith in the midst of so much fear. And we have a lot to be fearful of. Lord, in this moment, have thine own way with me, and with this word. In the name of Jesus, amen, and amen. So there's a guy named Winston Churchill. I don't know. I had to look him up. I was supposed to learn about him in school, but I didn't know who that is. I'm not going to say who that is, because I hope y'all know, because I kind of still don't know. But he says something along the lines of, History is always written by the victors. And then there's an African po- proverb that says something similar, but gets to the same point. Maybe you've seen it. it. says, until the lion learns to write, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And then making that point even more emphatically, maybe you've heard of the person Zora Neale Hurston, a wonderful African-American writer of the, of the 20th century. She puts it pointedly, and she puts it this way. She says, if you are silent about your pain, they will kill you and say that you enjoyed it. If you are silent about your pain, they will kill you and say that you enjoyed it. And the point that all of these people in different contexts are trying to get to is that there are power dynamics involved in storytelling. Does that make sense? That there is differentials in power in how we tell the narrative. And there's often what we call or some people call a master narrative or a dominant narrative where it's not really actually about what happened but it's about what happened from a specific vantage point and that has all to do with who's telling the story which is a way of saying all who's in power. So I'm making the point long. What I'm trying to say is that, that storytelling is all wrapped up with, with, with power and agency. Power and agency. So at this point in the story, we are in week three. But at this point in the story, it's clear that we're going to have some main characters in this biblical story unfolding. There are going to be some characters that are, that are going to be center stage as the story unfolds. So first we meet this guy named Adam, and then God breathes life into this other person named Eve. And then those are these humans who cross some boundaries in the garden and they hide in fear and shame. And then God looks after them as they live with the consequences. And then next chapter, we meet who? Cain and Abel, where the cycle repeats. And consumed by anger and jealousy, Cain goes out into the field with his brother and murders him and lies. And then God protects him as Cain goes to live with the consequences of his actions. So then we meet the next set, the next duo of main characters, and that's Abram and Sarai. We meet them in chapter 12. We're in chapter 16 today, but it's still the story of Abram and Sarai. And so it's overwhelmingly clear that these are going to be the main characters. God chooses them to carry out the mission to bless the whole world. God makes a covenant with them. To Abram, he gives land and promises offspring and promises to bless the whole world through this covenant with Abram. This is, by all accounts, the story of Abram. So we would think. And yet it seems in this third week of the questions God asks, God chooses to go in a different direction this time. And I really am glad that on this day, in this week, in the world that we are now living in, that God chose to go a different direction with telling the story. And so as a result, we learn something new about God. So instead of Abram and Sarai, we meet an Egyptian slave. An Egyptian slave, it says not once but twice. That means bookmark it. That's probably something to think about. An Egyptian slave by the name of Hagar. And she's not only not the main character and not the central figure, but the Bible says that she is actually a slave to the main characters. So I want to be clear here, and this is is an important point, that what Hagar is experiencing and undergoing and surviving through is not just an experience of suffering, though it is that too. She is surviving under conditions of structural suffering. And I want that distinction to be made clear here, that there is a difference between having an experience of suffering, which we all have, Undoubtedly, and that's not to be diminished. And that is still very different than living under conditions that are structured and legitimated by and necessitate your suffering. Does that make sense? So it's not that she's just having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year or a bad season and she finds herself in slavery to Sarai and Abram. No, the totality of her life is subject to a system that requires her abuse her exploitation at the hands of people who are supposed to be the very carriers of the covenant promise. Have we thought about that? She is experiencing structurally abuse and exploitation at the hand of the very people who are supposed to be carrying the covenantal promise forward. So it's not as though Hagar is just a peripheral figure and she's fairly treated, but she just doesn't really matter to the story. No, this is brutal. This is unjust. And there's all these dynamics. Notice Egyptian slave. For the modern context, that means think racial dynamics. There are racial dynamics at play here. There are sexual dynamics at play here. There are gender dynamics at play here. There are economic power dynamics at play here. That put her what I would call in an impossible situation. An impossible situation is what Hagar is in. The text says, an Egyptian slave, not once but twice. I mean, let's not mince words here. She's forced to have sex, she's impregnated, she's looked on with contempt for doing what she was forced to do. And then Sarah lies on her, saying that it was Hagar who had contempt for her, when actually the text says that it was Sarai who had contempt, because she was barren and Hagar had the kid. Talk about dominant narratives. What would have happened if Sarai had told this story? Do you see how the dominant narrative starts to encroach always? And so as Abram and Sarai negotiate what to do with their human commodity or their human property, Abram, showing his standard exemplary moral leadership, tells Sarah, do whatever you want with her, basically. I mean, she's your slave. Do what you want. Treat her how you will. And the text says Sarah dealt with her harshly. Other other translations might say mistreated her. I'm, I'm trying to get build the picture of that this isn't just trivial kind of mistreatment. This is suffering. This is so wrong. This is slavery. This is abuse. This is exploitation on the structural level. And so blessed Hagar does what all oppressed people do when put in a situation that is unbearable. And Hagar does what I think all people do when they are filled with the will to survive. She steals away in the night. She flees. And she flees into the wilderness. And then the text says that there in the wilderness, by a spring of water, the angel of the Lord finds her. that there in the wilderness by a spring of water the angel of the lord finds hagar the abused one of the insiders to the covenant so please 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 don't miss this as the reader i want i hope this kind of smacks us in the spirit at <laughs> the fact that the lord chooses to go to hagar in the desert and that the lord chooses to abide with hagar and that chooses to be present to Hagar, chooses to ask Hagar these questions, chooses to bless Hagar, chooses to see and be seen by Hagar, we're like, wait a minute. And if we, we scroll back, we're like, wait. So this is the God who was in the beginning, who made the heavens and the earth, and the God that made the oceans and the mountains, and the God who put trees in the forest, and critters in the dirt, and put moon in the sky, and the God that made the grizzly bear, and then the starfish, and then the daisies in the field, and made leaves change colors, and the God who breathed life into the Adam, and the God who saw what they had made and called it all very good, and the God who then knit clothes for his disobedient creation, and the God who puts protection over the guy who kills his own brother in a field, and the God who spared Noah and then made a promise to all of creation to never destroy it, and then the God who scatters everyone and everything in, in chapter 11 is now the God who then makes a covenant with a cranky old guy, and you're telling me that this ends up being the same God, the same God that then goes out into the wilderness to see a slave girl who the insiders of the covenant are actively abusive towards. I'm trying to tie it together here. That is the God of Hagar. And so we find out real quickly early. We're just in chapter 16 of a whole long compilation of books. But in chapter 16, we find out something about God, that this God draws very near to specific people who suffer at the hand of power. You will see that theme over and over and over and over again in Scripture. In chapter 16, we find out that God doesn't play the whole insider, outsider games that we play, that God doesn't do the kind of dividing that we do, that God doesn't do the passive, apathetic thing that we do. And we find out that God doesn't do power the way that we do. And it turns out the God who was the God in the beginning is also the God who instinctively rushes to the care. Of beaten and bruised and battered people, beaten and bruised and battered people who suffer systemically. And it turns out that the God of the main characters can't help but be the God of the one who is on the underside of the dominant narrative. The God of the main characters can't help but become the God of the one who is on the underside of the narrative, too. And so in chapter 16, I'm trying to belabor the point here, that it's not so much about where God stands on a given issue. See, that doesn't really quite get to who God is. It's much more about with whom God stands. It's not about issues or or where we're supposed to stand, but it's about God's instinctive rushing to certain people. They're similar, but there's a distinction there. And so it turns out, finally, that in this wild turn of a story, that Hagar, too, belongs to Yahweh. Hagar, too. I don't know why when I was preparing that, that kept sticking with me. Hagar, too. I don't know what that means yet. But this is good news. (laughs) In fact, I'll say it's better than good news. Actually, it is liberating news because it's Hagar's God Two, when it's okay, I think for most of us, it's not going to experientially feel like good news yet. Because I think there's a lot of us here who don't have the experiential knowledge or the lived experience as being a part of a group that is systematically abused or exploited. Not everyone in here suffers structurally, though some do. Not everyone comes from a people here that is colonized or occupied or is being culturally and literally decimated. And that's okay, because we can still learn a great deal about God, even when God's asking questions to people who don't share our experience. That's a part of what this series is, too. It's that the way we can learn about God and the way we can learn about ourselves can come through the way that God works with people who don't share anything in common with we do, with what we have. So the late Reverend Dr. Dolores Willing, when I give y'all names, please write them down so you can go look them up. The Reverend Dr. Dolores Williams, Dolores S. Williams, Dolores S. Williams, y'all could write that down. I meant to put up a slide, but oh well. She's important. She writes this groundbreaking, groundbreaking book called Sisters in the Wilderness, Sisters in the Wilderness, which is considered a staple in the field of, fancy terms, but like theological ethics and particularly womanist theology. Womanist just means black women's feminism. Because feminism without black women usually still ends up being oppressive to black women. So Dolores Williams writes this book called Sisters in the Wilderness, and she focuses in on one particular story in the Bible. Can you guess which one that is? Genesis 16. And she, she argues that there is no other narrative in the Bible that clearly parallels and symbolizes The Collective Experience of Black Women in the United States. She says the Hagar narrative is the survival narrative of black women who know all too well what it's like to be forced into motherhood, forced into surrogate motherhood, mistreated, cast out into a perpetual wilderness. And she further argues that Hagar's encounter with God in the wilderness restores agency to Hagar and links Hagar to the covenantal promise by foreshadowing her future survival with Ishmael and his future line. And so Dr. Dolores Williams, who you're going to look up later, shows us that by looking into the story of Hagar, we find that we can't, we can't just look to the God of Abram and Sarai. See, God doesn't speak into just a theoretical world or an abstract world or to us in a vague general sense. God always speaks into real-life circumstances, real-life context, things that we are actually experiencing. And so this colors and informs how we look at the questions of God today. You must have thought, are we even going to get to the questions? So I promise you, even if these might not be the questions that you can resonate with today, that's okay. Okay. We'll be all right. We can learn something anyway. Because I promise you, there are folks who need the God of Hagar to show up. And so Yahweh, through the angel of God, here we go, comes to Hagar in the wilderness and asks these two questions. Where have you come from? It's crazy, it's a duo of questions, even though we're usually just doing one question. But where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from, where are you going? That first question, where have you come from? I would call this, I was trying to find the right words for what I, what I want to call this, I, and it's the compassionate question, I think. It's the therapeutic question, maybe. The question that encourages reflection on trauma and thereby healing from that trauma? And it's, I think it's the question that causes us to kind of reminisce and reflect on our own experience. It's the question that leads people to realize, what, what the heck have I been through? Where have I come? I've come through hell and high water. I've come through suffering. I've come from more than I could say. I've come through many dangers and toils and snares. I've come from abuse. I've come from mistreatment. I've come from bondage. I've come from destruction. I've come from wickedness. I've come from injustice. It's the compassionate loving question. It's almost as I almost hear God in that wilderness with Hagar saying, "I am so sorry what you have been through." Before there's any you ought to or you should or what was your role in it. It almost feels like God is saying, That's a lot that you've had to hold. Where have you come from? That's a lot that you've had to bear. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. That should not have happened. The compassionate or therapeutic question, I think, for those enduring structural suffering on the run And then there's the other question. And I don't have as much of a clue about what this one is. This is the harder one. And I want to call this the impossible question. Where are you going? Are you kidding me, God? What do you mean, where am I going? Notice she doesn't actually answer that question. She answers the first one, where have you come from? Well, she's on the run. She's fleeing. That's where I've come from. It's an impossibility to answer the question, where am I going, when you're on the run? You don't know. This is out of survival. And then on top of that, right after God asked this question, God asks her to go return and submit? It's starting to seem a little bit like God is like this divine slave driver or something. And unfortunately, a lot of us still think of God that way or at least talk like it, and at least act like it in our own spiritual life, that God is a mean tyrant. And then there's this other thing I realized about this question I was just sitting with. I was like, where, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And then it hit me, and I just, I offer it to you as, as a collective reflection, because I don't, I don't quite know yet. But it's interesting to me that the question in Genesis 3 was, where are you? And so, fearful and scared of being found, God asks, where are you? To people who are disobedient and hiding in shame. But then, fearful and scared of being found, to a woman who's enduring unjust treatment, God asks, where are you going? So that might not connect with you. Maybe that's too much of a textual analysis or something. But there's something there for me. The connection between where are you in Genesis 3 and where are you going in Genesis 16. Because I, I don't know, the going, the going word, that last word, where are you going, to me, suggests there's some movement. And it suggests that it's a little future-oriented to me. And it's, a little bit, it's in process, it's in movement, it's on the move. And then we get verse 10. Verse 10, extraordinary. The angel proclaims the promise of her future. Did you, did you recognize that the angel echoes the exact same language that God gives to Adam and Eve with the creational mandate? Remember all that language be fruitful, be fruitful, be fruitful, multiply, 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 I'll make you multitude. Wait, that God is now saying this to Hagar the slave girl in the wilderness. You notice it also echoes the language of the Abrahamic covenant covenant from from chapter 12 and chapter 15. This idea of of becoming a people, becoming a multitude, blessing the whole world through through a singular family. So last night, I... uh, I made the mistake of kind of scrolling my feed and looking at news stories. Um, I, I never think that's healthy, really, to do just that. But it was all these images and videos and, and stats and these little factoids that are unspeakably sad and unspeakably wrong. And I was, I was watching this one reporter, and she was reporting live in Gaza, and she's, she's halfway through explaining what's going on in the situation there, and, and she breaks down, and she goes, it's just, this is an impossible situation. This is an impossible situation. And so I think it is, this is our reflection, I think it is into impossible situations like Hagar's, that God asks this pair of questions, the compassionate, therapeutic question, and the unanswerable, impossible question. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Where have you come from, sweet child? Where have you come from? Where are you going, sweet child? And then the angel goes on this weird little spiel. And he's basically like, Look, your son's going to have smoke with everybody. And the whole world's going to beef with him. Um, and he's going to be like a wild. It's a, some translations say donkey, mine says ass. And I kind of resonated with that part a little bit, I guess. He's going to be a wild ass of a man. And then we come to the end of the exchange. And now Hagar who has been found by the God of the universe and called out by name, becomes the first one to name God in return. Did y'all notice that? We get to the end of this kind of weird, confusing, maybe problematic, beautiful exchange. And now Hagar, who's the property of the covenant holders, has been found in the wilderness by God and called out by name. And then she becomes the first one to name God in return, the first one in the Bible, the first one we learn of, Elroy. Do you see the agency that Dolores Williams was talking about? It's perhaps subtle. Do you see the bravery? You are El Roy, I have now seen the one who sees me. What an image of faith. What a, what a framework maybe for our own faith today. To see the one who sees me. And to participate in the great seeing of God. And therein is the transformation that our eyes undergo, that now everyone before us changes. We change when we look in the mirror. How we look at God changes. How we look at situations changes. So when we see the one who sees us, we begin to see like the one who sees us. So I hope You are trying to connect the dots that I'm trying to connect here. But there are countless people in our world today who need not the God of Abram and Sarai, but need the God of Hagar. There are so many in our world on this morning, at this very moment, who need the God who shows up in the wilderness, the God who shows up in the occupied territory, where half the population are children, the God who shows up for the mother and her infant as they walk through the treacherous jungles of Panama, who shows up in the bomb shelter, who shows up in the hospital room where electricity has been cut, who shows up in the rubble, the rubble, who shows up for the bombed and the buried, and the burned, who shows up in the tent city, full of people who have left everything to flee, to survive. And so I encourage you this morning, church, I encourage you to think on the God who shows up in the wilderness and, in doing so, reveals that all these stupid lines that we draw, all of the demonizing, all of the dehumanizing, all of the hate, all of the bigotry, all of this insider-outsider distinctions that we make, all of the walls that we build to trap people in, all of the bombs that we drop because we've forgotten that we are siblings, all of the desecration of precious humans, all of the animosity, all of the callousness, all of the cowardice, all of the ways that we flaunt our status as God's covenant people while casting others into the wilderness. All of that, God says, to hell with that. I don't play sides the way you do. I don't play the divisive games that you play. It's too lethal. That's too petty for me. It's too small-minded. It's not expansive enough. God will always choose people and everyone. That is God's sign, And isn't that what the whole covenant was, anyway? I will be your God. You will be my people. And in an ironic twist, it turns out that that's not just for Abram. And it's not just for Sarai. And it's not just for the so-called insiders. And it extends to everyone. I will be your God. You will be my people, church. Can we live like that? So this morning, when we reflect on the questions God asks in a world like that, may you see the one who sees those that suffer and runs to them. May you know that this is the God that so many need, even if you think you don't. May you see the one who sees you. May you begin to see the way that that God sees. God doesn't divide the field the way we do. In the name of God. Our loving and caring parent, in the name of Jesus, who is love incarnate, who binds us to all people, and in the name of that Holy Spirit, that energizing force for unity, amen, amen.